And that happens as we open up our Bibles and let the Holy Spirit teach us through it. So let's pray toward that end. Lord God, you are triune in nature. You are three persons making up one God. You are God the Father. You are God the Son. And you are God the Holy Spirit. And you serve as our perfect example of fellowship and community and family. That you together as one God have different roles and responsibilities and tasks. And yet you do so in perfect union and perfect harmony of, of relationship and mission and purpose. Would you help us in our families, in our marriages, and in our church family uh, dis- display this unity and diversity that exists in who you are? We need your help toward that end because sometimes and very often we mess things up. Uh, we create disunity in our relationships and even in our church family. And, and so therefore we need you as our example and as our inspiration. Help me to speak and teach your words today, not my own. I need your help, your power, your anointing Holy Spirit as we dive into this very often misunderstood doctrine called the Trinity. In Christ's name, amen. So with that, I will now invite Arnell to come forward, and he is going to read today's scripture. Thank you, Arnell. From the book of uh, 2 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 14, Paul said to the Christians, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all much for that very lengthy scripture reading. I think our scripture readers have been very thankful because we went through a, psalm or a series this last summer in the book of Psalms, and some of those Psalms were very lengthy. I think you had a long one, and Scott did as well, and they were up here for like 10 minutes just reading scripture. Uh, so anyhow, today we're simply continuing our current sermon series, and the title of the series is this, Show Me What the Bible Says About Dot, Dot, Dot. Basically looking to the Bible to discover some of the major things that it is important for us to know and understand about God, about life, about what it is to be a Christian. And a part of this series and the design of it is, yes, it is to look at some of the core doctrines of the Bible and the core doctrines of the Christian life and the gospel, but it is also to look at uh, some doctrines that are very commonly misunderstood, in fact, that create some fights amongst Christians, some Times, and that is precisely what we're looking at and desiring to do today is, is, is just deal head on with a very often controversial doctrine known as the Trinity. That is today's message title is a question, what is it? What is the Trinity? And there have been controversies, discussions, fights, arguments amongst pastors, amongst Bible theologians pretty much for the first 400 years of church history. And there were councils constructed and councils made and they met together and they fought together and they hammered out essentially what ended up becoming the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, here's an actual photograph of one of those fights that they had. Oh, there it is. It's not an actual photo. It's a painting. And it might not even be the council that discussed the Trinity. I'm not sure. But anyhow, there you have it. And why has it created so much <coughs> fighting over the, the centuries, over the years? Well, it is because the doctrine of the Trinity is very hard to understand. It is very hard to get your mind 
around. In fact, one British theologian said something like this. He said, if you think you finally nailed down the Trinity and you've got it all figured out and sorted out, you know, gold star for you. He said, if you think that's all sorted out now in your own, your own mind, he basically said, you know nothing about the Trinity. You know nothing about the Trinity if you think you got it nailed down. So there's some level of mystery. And the reason that there's this level of mystery is because God is infinitely greater than we are. He is infinite. There is no limit to who God is. We ourselves are very finite and very limited. And so for us as limited, finite creatures trying to understand fully an infinite, unlimited person, that's just simply impossible. But this we know from the Bible, that the Father is God, that the Son is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there is only one God. You're saying, excuse me? Hence the confusion, right? Our confusion, though, does not nullify the truth of what God says in Scripture about the reality, about the truth, the fact that God is one God, but He is three persons. Okay, here's the rub. Let me ask you this. Is the word Trinity ever used in the Bible? Anybody want to respond to that? Is the word Trinity ever seen or used in the Bible? The answer is no. You're absolutely right. It's never used in the Bible, but this does not mean that the doctrine, the teaching of the Trinity is not true. It does also not, the fact that it's not in the Bible does not mean that it is not based on the teachings found in the Bible, do you see? Here is what the word Trinity itself means. It means tri-unity, tri-unity, or three in oneness, three in oneness, and the word is used to summarize the full teaching uh, of in Scripture of this idea of God and three persons, yet one God. God and three persons, yet one God. All right. Before we dive into what the Bible says about the Trinity, let me give you a helpful and clarifying definition from Bible theologian by the name of Wayne Grudem. And he defines the Trinity as this. He says, the Trinity means that God exists, eternally exists, as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. Now, you read that, you might hear that, and you're still saying, I don't get it. This is really, what in the world? This is not clarifying. That was supposed to be clarifying. That wasn't clarifying at all. But bear with me. Yes, as we unpack this definition, as we look at what the Bible says about this doctrine, it is going to be technical. Today might be more like a seminar than a sermon. So it's going to require work for you to bear with me, to hang in there, to take notes, to just realize this is going to be a different kind of sermon today. You might struggle to hang in there, but I, I am saying it is worth it. It is worth it. If you give this a chance, um, if you try to seriously examine uh, this beautiful doctrine, I think you will be filled with a greater sense of awe, a greater sense of worship towards God as you see his, his complexity and his mystery and his beauty in a fresh new way as we look at this important doctrine. Furthermore, I want to, to equip you. You guys, some of you in this room have friends who are Muslims. Some of you in this room also have friends who are Jehovah's Witnesses. Neither the Muslims or the Jehovah's Witness friends of ours believe in this concept or idea of the Trinity. They think we're worshiping three gods where we say we are not. That's not what the Bible is saying. So I want to actually help you, give you some tools to give you a better understanding of the Trinity so that you can better and more effectively explain the Trinity to your Muslim friends 
and to your Jehovah Witness friends, and even just to your not-yet-Christian friends who, you know, don't believe in this stuff either. There's one last key application I want to give you today. Some of us in this room are married. Some of us in this room have families. And what I want you to see today is how the doctrine of the Trinity informs and inspires how you conduct your marriage, how you conduct your family relationships as well. This is very, very practical stuff. This is why you should listen to this seminar today, all right? So is that an agreement there? Have we all agreed? Yes, absolutely. We're going to hang in there to the very end. Uh, Let's break into this. I'm joking. Let's begin with point number one in your notes as we unpack this important doctrine. Number one is simply this, and it's very short, it's very simple. There is one God. There is one God. We do not worship three gods. No, there is one God. This is what the Bible says. Look at Deuteronomy from the Old Testament, chapter 6, verse 4. It says simply, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There it is. The Lord is one. Then we see 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4b. It says that there is no God but one. Then, would you look with me, 1 Timothy, as we move on, chapter 2, verse 5, it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, men, the man Jesus Christ. Bible is clear, crystal clear. There is one God. There is not three gods, meaning the three different persons in what we call the Godhead, they are one in purpose. They are one in agreement on what they think. Most importantly, they are one in essence. They are one in being. And I realize the term essence, the term being, they themselves deserve further explanation, but I don't have time for that. But they are one in their essential nature. That's what God is like. Let me ask you this. As we begin to look at this oneness, this three-in-oneness, are you getting a sense of the unity and the, the beautiful togetherness Yes, there's one God, but there's three persons in this one God. Let's move on. We're going to ramp this up now and look at point number two in our understanding of the Trinity. Number two is this. Yes, there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's one God who exists as three eternal distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is where things get very interesting and fascinating, I think. Let's look at a verse that we looked at last Sunday. It's the very first verse of the Bible. And from the very first verse of the Bible, we see the doctrine of the Trinity. Did you know that? The verse, first verse of the Bible is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you need to know that the Old Testament of the Bible was not written in 21st century modern-day English. Okay? That's why you never see uh, or ever, ever hear, uh, you know, sort of slang words in the Bible today. By the way, the Bible was not written in King James English either from the 16th century. The, the Old Testament of the Bible was written in ancient Hebrew. And when you look at the ancient Hebrew, when it was written in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, uh, we see uh, this, that the, the word for God in Genesis 1, 1 is a Hebrew plural noun name for God. The, the, the word is Elohim, okay? All that to say Elohim. Elohim. It is a plural name for God, all right? The plural God created the heavens and the earth. A plural God created the heavens and the earth, and yet is one 
God. Later on in the creation account, later on in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26a, it says, Then God said, hear me on this. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let us make man. So that verse is not only breathtaking because God, out of his great love and mercy, just chooses to make us to reflect some of his qualities. What an honor. What a privilege. This is where the message of the Bible is so much better than the atheistic message where there is no God in that, that belief and they just sort of relegate us to the, the level of animals and nature. No, no, no. Here the Bible says we, we are not just mere animals. We're made in God's image, reflecting some of his qualities. The, the dignity of humanity is raised when we look at what the Bible says about you and I. So that's striking in and of itself, but the other striking thing is the fact that God is referring to himself here as us, as plural, more than one person, more than two persons. He is referring to himself as three persons. Now, let us shift to the New Testament of the Bible, where Jesus, he is asked in this passage to read Scripture. So Arnell read Scripture today. Many of you read Scripture from Sunday to Sunday. Why are we reading Scripture in our church's services? Because Jesus read Scripture in his local synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And this is what he is doing there as I try to find my spot here. And this is a a passage that we read in Luke chapter 4 verse 18. And you see what he's doing is actually just reading the Scripture that is handed to him to read that was scheduled for that day. And in God's providence, God knows exactly what he's doing. He is that sovereign that he could choose a scripture that was given to Jesus, that Jesus would read the scripture and then explain the scripture. And it's taken from Isaiah chapter 61. And he is up there reading the scripture. And here's the quote from Isaiah 61 that Jesus reads. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Isn't that breathtaking? That's the ministry of Christ. That is good. Christ was anointed by the Spirit of God to share the good news, good news of hope, that there's more beyond this life, that we're not relegated to be separated from God. He's given us hope, and that's, what, that's the good news given to us by Jesus A message of liberty to the captives. We don't have to be addicted to sin anymore. Locked in sinful patterns, destructive patterns anymore. He frees us from that. He takes away the the spiritual blinders that that we can finally see the light. Christ gives us that ability to now see the light, see reality. Life defined as the Bible defines it for us. He allows that to happen through his finished work on the cross. And he gives us liberty. That's good in and of itself. But here's the thing. This is a Trinitarian passage. This mission of Jesus is Trinitarian in every way. Look further down if you have this chapter in front of you. Uh, Verse 21 in Luke 4 says, and this is referring to Jesus, and he, Jesus, began to say to them, today this scripture that he's just read, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so do you see the three persons of the Trinity in that Scripture quoted from Isaiah 61. Jesus says that the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, the Spirit of the who? Of the Lord, that is the first member of the Trinity, God the Father. The Spirit of the Lord is upon who? The second member of the Trinity, 
Jesus Christ, God the Son. And Jesus confirms this Trinitarian prophecy from Isaiah by saying, this scripture that I just read, imagine that. This scripture that was handed to me, that was planned by the synagogue leaders, this scripture is being fulfilled right here, right now. One God, one God in three persons working together in harmony to save, to redeem, to give hope to the world. It's beautiful. I want to give you one other example, a quick example from the life of Jesus. And this is an example where we see the three persons in one God work together. And again, these are distinct persons, but this is from Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Uh, we see Jesus being baptized. Some of you need to be baptized by your own choice, like Jesus. He did it. Why wouldn't you? And that's an important step that should be made. And this is a step that Jesus himself took. And this is just a beautiful, I love this real life true story that took place here. And here's what it says, Matthew 3.16. And when Jesus was baptized, literally dunked into the River Jordan, Jordan River, I don't know what I was going to say there. Jesus was baptized Immediately, he went up from the water, so he comes up out of the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and behold, it says, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I love this picture it is so beautiful because, again, we see the three persons in the one God. We see Jesus, God the Son. He's being baptized in the water. Then what happens? Heavens open up. God, the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, falls upon him and fills him. And then we hear the voice, who is God the Father, say, Behold, this is my beloved Son. I'm pleased with him. This is a beautiful picture not only of sort of the, the oneness and the unity and the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but also do you see the beauty of the three distinct persons in God and they're working together in harmony and in unity at, at such a very important event in the life of Jesus. Again, there is one God and yet they eternally exist as three distinct persons persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. There's yet another angle to the Trinity here as we move on to number three in your notes if you're following along. Each person in God is fully God. You might hear that, you think, what does that mean? I'll explain shortly. Each God in God is fully God. This is where some people get the idea of the Trinity somewhat confused. They ask, well, if God is three distinct persons, then does this mean that each person in God is like one-third of God or 33.333333% of God? Okay, it's kind of like a pie. And is there anyone in the room that does not like pie? Don't we all love pie? Uh, let me try not to get sidetracked in thinking about pumpkin pie with whipped cream. It has to have the whipped cream because then you don't have the balance of the two flavors working together. But anyhow, they kind of see God as a pie. And they say, well, there must be God the Father up top, maybe the Son on the left and the Holy Spirit on the right, and only together do they make up the one God. Now, that's a good and honest question. Uh, this stuff is not easy to sort out. But the answer to the question being, is, is Jesus 33% and the Holy Spirit 33% and God the Father 33 only together do they make up the 100% God? 
The answer to that question is a resounding no. It doesn't work that way at all. No, 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 no. You see, the doctrine of the Trinity does not divide God like the picture into three parts. The Bible is clear that all three persons are each 100% God. Each are 100% God, fully God. The Son is fully God. The Father is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. And if you cut God into pieces like this, here's what you end up with. Each one is not fully God. In fact, you don't have a God at all if you start dividing him up like that. That's not good. Here's an example from Scripture that shows us that each person in God is fully God. We see this, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. In fact, earlier today in our community group before the service, I noticed in Philippians 2, yet another confirmation that Jesus is in himself fully God as well. But Colossians 2, 9 says, For in him, referring to Jesus, in him, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity and divinity dwells bodily. So the whole fullness of godness, if you will, exists in, dwells in the person of Jesus, and so it does with God the Father, and so it does with God the Spirit. So let's move on. That's an important thing to know. Let's move on to yet another aspect of the Trinity, number four in your notes, as we keep trucking along. Each person in the Godhead, hanging in there okay? Each person in the Godhead are distinguished from each other. They're distinguished from each other. What this means is God the Father is not God the Son, and God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit, and God the Holy Spirit is not God the Son, and God the Son is not the Holy Spirit. You know, you could go on and on for quite a while, but the point is each person in God is distinct. For example, in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, we see Jesus, God the Son, he's speaking to his disciples, which he often did. And he is telling them to, that he will, Jesus is saying, I will pray to God, the Father, about him then sending God the Holy Spirit to empower you and to help you. Here's the example. John 14, 16 and 17 says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that's the Holy Spirit, to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, there it is again, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Again, another reminder, God allows His Holy Spirit, His own presence, to dwell within every and any true Christian. How else can we live the Christian life? How else can we make disciple, making disciples of Jesus for God's glory, which is our mission statement? We need help. I need help. I, we all need help. And the Holy Spirit is there to help and empower us to make disciples for Jesus. But if each person in the Trinity were not distinct like this, you see, why would Jesus pray to the Father about sending the Holy Spirit? Each are very distinct from one another. And here's a big reason why each member of the Trinity is distinct. And number, the, the reason why is number five in your notes. Each person in God have distinct and different roles and tasks. Each person in God have different roles, different tasks, different jobs to do, if you will. Many in this room have jobs. Are you employed or were employed? And in your current job or former job, did you have some sort of job description laid out? Maybe you've forgotten about your job description. Does anyone not have a job description? Okay, some of you. <laughs> it happens. I get it. But it, it's very helpful to have a job description. Why? Well, because you need to know what your, your job is. 
What are your tasks that you are supposed to do? What are the, maybe the, the character qualities that you are to have in this job? What are the skills and talents and intellectual requirements that are needed in this job? So having that laid out for you very clearly and very forthrightly is very helpful so you can accomplish what your job is. But sometimes if you don't have that job description, there's non-clarity. It's kind of fuzzy. You're like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing. I've been here for 30 years. I have no idea. We're going to, I won't say name names, but that would be troublesome. With God, no non-clarity. There is no confusion about what each person in God is to do. No clarity. Let me, in fact, now spell out the basic job descriptions of each person in the Trinity, okay? And this is where we're, we're getting quite technical here now, okay? Hang with me. Hang with me, please. This is really important stuff. Let us now unpack the first job description of God the Father. I think this is on the screen. Might be in your notes as well. What is God the Father's job description and set of roles and set of tasks? Well, His primary role is to be the, the ultimate source, the ultimate cause of, the ultimate initiator of the universe, and the creation of it. Uh, further, God's, the Father's role is to be the source of divine revelation. And this is what is known as specific revelation. This is the, the, the details of what it is to be, to, we learn about God himself, we learn about how to become a Christian, how to be saved, how to be transformed by him, God's plan. But more generally, general, general revelation is we look around at nature, we can see God's handiwork. Uh, the, the, the heavens display the glory of God. So God is the initiator of revealing himself and the source of revelation to humanity. All right? Lastly, God is the initiator and the source of salvation for humankind, allowing us to enter into God's family, be saved from Satan's sin and death forevermore. He's also the source and the cause of Jesus' human works on earth during his three-year ministry. All right? That is the basic set of roles, tasks, and job description for God the Father. Let's move on to the job description for God the Son, the Lord Jesus. What is his primary role and set of tasks? Well, Jesus is the agent. Think of Jesus as the agent through whom God the Father accomplishes the following works and tasks. You ready? Jesus is the agent of creation. Jesus is the agent of the maintenance of creation and sustaining the universe, holding it all, all together. Jesus is the agent of divine revelation. If you look at John chapter 1, Jesus is described as the Word, that Jesus is the Word of God. He's the, the Word made flesh, all right? So he is God's message to the world, a message of hope, living and breathing. It's a beautiful thing, all right? He's the agent of God's Word and God's revelation. And most importantly, Jesus is the agent of salvation, had Jesus not come and lived your perfect life in your place, had Jesus not been crucified, dying on the cross for your sins in your place, even though he himself never once sinned, had Jesus not been risen from the dead three days later to defeat Satan's sin and death, you and I would have no salvation at all. So he's the agent. He's the one that made that happen. And that was his primary role, to be the agent of salvation. So it's amazing. God the Father accomplishes creation. God the Father accomplishes revelation. God the Father accomplishes salvation through whom? Through the Son. It's beautiful. We have one more job description to lay out. Whose job description are we looking at? That is God the Holy Spirit's 
role and set of tasks in the Godhead. And here's what the Holy Spirit does scripturally. And there's all kinds of scripture uh, references in your notes there, just so you know I'm getting this from the Bible, okay? Um, Here is the Holy Spirit's job. His job is to be the means, the means by whom the Father uh, does the following things. Creation, maintaining the universe, okay? Bringing about divine revelation. In fact, it's the Holy Spirit who inspired uh, uh, 40 different authors to write this book. That inspiration came from God the Holy Spirit, and that's how God the Father brought us the Bible as we have it today. Thanks be to God for that. The Holy Spirit's job was also to empower who? Jesus. On the day of his baptism, who came down like a dove onto Jesus? God the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus at that moment was filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit's power and wisdom. And lastly, the Holy Spirit, thanks be to God, is the means by which God the Father empowers us, his church, as Christians to live the Christian life, to obey Jesus, and to make disciple-making disciples of Jesus for God's glory, to pursue his mission. And so we've looked at some heady stuff here, all right? It's a little bit detailed, a little technical when it comes to understanding or trying to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. By the way, there are more aspects to this uh, doctrine Um, But perhaps you're asking this question, what in the world, why would we look at this today? I mean, what's the purpose? This sounds so technical, and it sounds like we're in Bible college. I don't want to be in Bible college. Maybe you do. That's fantastic. But maybe you don't want a sermon that kind of sounds Bible college-ish. Well, here is the practical practical application of the Trinity and why understanding and knowing about the Trinity is helpful to you in your everyday life. So we're going to look at three key practical applications. Number one in your notes is this. Simply worship. Stand in awe of God's greatness displayed in the mysterious reality and the workings of one God in three persons. That's the practical application of this teaching. Just worship. Stand in awe as you see more of God and what He's like. I want to give you an example. And the example I want to share with you has to do with my favorite mountain might be my favorite mountain in the whole world. It's not Mount Everest. It happens to be Mount Robson. Anyone seen Mount Robson in the room? Okay. It's beautiful. You've got to see it. You've got to see it. But it's hard to see sometimes. Let me explain why. Very often when you travel by Mount Robson, I think it's the Yellowhead Highway, uh, this is the tallest mountain in the Rocky Mountains. And it's gorgeous. But it is rarely visible at the very top. And it's rarely visible because it's so high up. It is so high up that clouds often skewer or get in the, in the way of seeing the mountain in all its glory. And there's the odd day, though, when you do travel by or you go to the back of the mountain. These photos are from the backside of Mount Robson, which are actually even more breathtaking. And the odd sunny day, no cloud in the sky, will come along, and you can finally see the sheer beauty and the magnitude and the wonder and the greatness of its tallness and of its size. And unless those clouds were taken away, you would not have been able to appreciate that mountain in all its glory and wonder. And so it is with the doctrine of the Trinity, you see. Yes, you can study it all day long and still not understand it, but that's okay. Just as we've done today 
we've examined this beautiful doctrine. We've looked at it in, th- in some detail. We've seen God in three persons, how they work together in, in perfect unity, and so on. Well, hopefully today, more of those clouds of misunderstanding have been taken away, and you've seen more of the comprehensiveness and, and, and the greatness of God more clearly, how beautiful He is, how majestic He is, how mysterious He is, how organized He is, how unified and together He is. And you're just like, that's amazing. And let that understanding inform your worship. Take what you've learned today, or maybe take what you've relearned today to worship God more fully with your mind and with your heart and come to this place of awe. All right, that's the first application. The second practical, nitty-gritty thing that you can do in your life based on this doctrine is number two in your notes. Simply apply the principle of, of unity in diversity in your immediate family and church family. Apply the principle of unity and diversity in your own immediate family and your church family as well. You see, our, our triune God, He exists in perfect togetherness and harmony and unity of relationships. The three persons working together perfectly, always, despite having differences in their roles, despite having differences in their tasks and in their jobs. It's a beautiful thing to see this unity and diversity within God Himself. And so therefore, we can allow God's nature to inform how we conduct ourselves in our own human relationships as well. For example, you might be married or you might be planning on being married someday. And chances are good if you're married and in your future marriage, you will likely marry your opposite. Does this ever happen? Does this happen to you? Did it happen to you like it happened to me? You tend to marry your opposite. My running joke, that's not really a joke, shouldn't be a joke, but my wife is not me. And uh, she's not me in the sense of she's nice to people, she loves people, she cares for people, she's very warm, very outgoing, people are magnetized to her, and those are all the things that I am not, you know, it's just amazing to see that, those differences. Um, But generally speaking, in marriage, you're opposite in gender, and you tend to be opposite in personality. For example, you know, he's organized and she's not, or she's organized and he's not. She's the life of the party, and he's certainly not. Or he's the life of the party, and she's certainly not. Or he's task-oriented, administrative, organized, and she's not, and vice versa. You see where this is going. Now, why in the world did you marry your opposite? Why did you marry your opposite? Because you need what your spouse has to offer, because what they have to offer is missing in you, in your character, and in your personality. You need someone different from you to sort of compliment yourself to make you better, to make you more full in terms of how you work and how you understand life and how you look at the world. And, and you, you add those qual- you learn those qualities and then you add those qualities from your spouse and you add them to your own personality and then those qualities are then seen in your own family and it's also seen in your own workplace. You know, you lack those qualities, that's why you marry someone. And it's not as if you remain single that you're lacking qualities, by the way. Let me, I'm not saying that. But it helps to marry someone who's different than you. Now, a lot of couples these days, sometimes, and I want to be sensitive here, sometimes they don't make it in marriage. You know why? Very often the excuse that is given for not making it in marriage, in some cases, is because we're, what? Incompatible. Incompatible. Not on the same page. We're just too different. We just can't get along. I like opera. He likes ACDC. Why? You know? 
I like kale. He likes, all he eats is bacon. Drives me nuts, all right? We're just, he's a car guy. I hate cars, you know, whatever it happens to be. But the thing is, the, what works in marriage is you got to see your differences as God's design. That's how he set it up. He brought you together because, yes, you are incompatible for a purpose. You're different. You need what the other one has. All right? And see that as a good thing. Uh, this adds variety to your marriage. It adds life and spice to your relationship. And, and just as the three persons in God and the things that they do are different, and yet they do these things in perfect harmony, so must husbands and wives see your differences as your strength. You've got to see your differences as your marital strength with God's help. Same thing in a church family. We've talked about families. Now let's move on to the church family, shall we? We come from different backgrounds different cultures, different age groups, different income streams. One of the things I love most about this church is because we are very multicultural. I love that about our church. We did a count one time. It was something like 13 different backgrounds, culturally speaking. Isn't that cool? And, And this is a good thing. You know, the other side, the other way in which we are different from one another is Uh, Some of us have leadership gifts. Some of us have teaching gifts. Some of us have shepherding gifts. Some of us have mercy gifts. Some of us have hospitality gifts. Uh, Some of us have the gift of encouragement as well. So we have all these different backgrounds, all these different age groups, all these different gifts that we have. And if we are not careful, it is possible to sinfully allow our differences to actually isolate us from one another, to break us apart as a church family. You know, to say, well, there's no one here like me. Well, of course they're not like you. No one is exactly like another person. And we've got to see our differences as our strength. We've got to see our differences as a good, healthy thing. We've got to see our diversity as a gift from God. Do we see our diversity as a gift from God? It is a gift from God that we should celebrate and that we should give God thanks for. Thank you for not making us all the same. How boring would that be? Our diversity, did you know, our diversity is a reflection of who? Of God. And how he exists in himself. God in three persons. Isn't that cool? Therefore, let us faithfully apply the principle of unity and diversity. Unity and diversity here in our church family. There is one last application. You've done well to bear with me with this somewhat seminar-like message today. One last application is number three in your notes that we can base upon the doctrine of the Trinity. And here it is. Simply reflect God in three persons in your prayers. Reflect this idea of God in three persons in your prayers. Here's the thing. Some people, even Christians, only pray to who? God the Father. Yeah, God the Father. That's been my experience at least. And this is like having a family meeting. Imagine at this family meeting, it's a big table. And at this family meeting, we got grandpa, we got grandma, we got the dad and the mom, we got the kids, and we got the grandkids. Maybe we got 20, 30 people around the table. So imagine at this family meeting where there's supposed to be communication going on, guess who everyone is only talking to? Grandpa. One-way conversation. All 30 people are only talking to grandpa, okay? And it's just kind of weird, kind of awkward in some ways, right? It just seems kind of strange. And so it is if you limit your prayers to just God the Father. Yes, by the way, most of the examples of prayers in Scripture are directed towards God the Father. So that's obviously not a bad thing. If that's what you've been doing, that's fantastic. But 
Here's the thing. If not only God the Father is God, if not only Jesus is God, if not only the Holy Spirit is God, no, they're each God. They make up the one God. Why would it be ever wrong to pray to God the Son or God the Holy Spirit? It would never be wrong. It's a good thing. So in your notes, I have included some examples of prayers to the Father, some examples of prayers to Jesus, and some examples, or one example, I think, to God the Holy Spirit. And when you pray to the three members of the Trinity, it just sort of enriches your prayer life when you worship God according to their various tasks and roles. All right? When you ask God for for help according to their respective role, task, and responsibility. You know, for example, the Holy Spirit, it's clear in the New Testament, His role is, is to comfort us. So ask, when you need comfort, pray to the Holy Spirit. Part of the Holy Spirit's role is also to empower us with boldness and courage to share the gospel. So pray to God, the Holy Spirit. Lord, I'm having a conversation with my coworker today. Please open a door that would lead us to a gospel conversation. And then give me the power, the strength, the wisdom, and the courage to then speak about you with winsomeness, with compassion, with grace, and with respect. You see how this works? It just enriches how you pray according to their own roles and responsibilities. That's it. We're done. You you hung in there pretty well. I'm impressed. So let us now go to prayer and just bring these truths home, asking God to apply them to our hearts. Lord, thank you for the richness of your character, the richness and the depth of who you are. You are one God in three persons. We will never fully understand with our finite, limited minds the comprehensiveness of how great and good you are. But perhaps today we've gotten a a better glimpse of what you're like and who you are and and just the, 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 the example that you are to us for our marriages, for our families, and church family. And so... We are so grateful for not only creating the world together as an us, but also saving the world as an us. Father, initiating, sending your son Jesus to come, to work salvation, to make salvation for us happen, make forgiveness for our sins happen, and then send the Holy Spirit to empower us to live the Christian life and to pursue your mission to help as many people as possible become disciple-making disciples of Jesus for God's glory. Lord, we come to a time of the Lord's Supper as we remember how all three persons work together for salvation. And may we think about that and consider that as we partake in communion today. In Christ's name, amen.